I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. For all the harrowing bravery of first responders and essential workers on the front lines of the COVID crisis over the last several months, many people have seen themselves spending more than a little time at home in efforts to practice safe social distancing. Now, all this time on the couch has led to an explosion in time surfing the web. And if you're like me, it's meant buying things online and getting caught up on the news and maybe The Crown, Narcos, and reruns of The Wire. But the internet isn't free, and it costs money to put information and services online. Now, for small content providers, this has always been a big deal as has monetizing websites to stay afloat. But now the stakes are supercharged as the world has gone digital. So to compete, many small content providers are forced to glom onto the platforms of larger firms in order to attract attention, even where they're charged big rents for the assistance. For a long time, this has been viewed as just the cost of doing business. But Stefan Thomas, the CEO of Coil, says it doesn't have to be that way. For Stefan, a veteran of the cryptocurrency industry, changing the economics of the internet isn't just about web design or development costs. Instead, he argues, if you really want to open up the internet and make it more accessible to new ideas and businesses, you do so by upgrading the internet's payments infrastructure. Indeed, it's through fintech, not just tech, that the real revolution will come to the internet. Now, this, of course, got my attention, and I've invited him on to the show to walk us through his mind-bending observation about the role of financial technology in unlocking communication, content, and competition online. Stefan, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks, Chris, for having me. I'm, I'm a big fan of the show, and it's, it's fun to be on the other side of the microphone. Indeed you are, and pulling you over, I think, is really going to be uh, interesting for our, our, our listeners. Now, you've been looking to disrupt the business models content sites use to generate revenue. And from what I understand, you want to do this because you think the internet's basic economics are awry since content sites struggle to make ends meet and invariably end up giving into ads or paywalls, what you've described as essentially a state of affairs where readers' eyeballs are sold to the highest bidder and the small end up rushing for the platforms of the big. Why is that the case? I mean, it's it's really a very interesting view from someone living in Silicon Valley and your centralization thesis of firms glomming onto the big, it, it kind of goes against the grain of at least the ideal of what people have always described the internet as doing. Yeah, that's a really great uh, way to ask the question. And, and essentially what's going on is that the internet is this extremely powerful and, and extremely democratized communication medium. Like anyone can send messages or video or really any any content you want to anyone in the world. 
Um, and it's even like very, very easy to make your own website. You know, there's services out there that make that really easy. Exactly, which generates a question then as to why do people tend to aggregate on the major platforms? We think, or I think that one of the, the big reasons for that is um, that that's where the money is. Um, and there's some really fundamental reasons in terms of how the internet works as to why that is. Namely, you know, the internet is a communication medium, but there isn't a built-in way to transfer value. So if you, for example, send me a article or you send me a minute of a podcast, um, I can download that very easily, but there isn't necessarily a way that I can send a, a packet back over the internet that contains some money. And so, um, you know, what we are uh, thinking about is like, you know, is there a way that you can you fix that uh, problem that's been plaguing the internet from the start, which is, you know, how do I reward people for the services and the content that they provide? So you're essentially saying that there's no way to reward content providers but isn't that what ads and subscription services are for? There are business models that people have, have found for, for doing things online um, and, you know, for profit. But the problem with both of those business models, and this is kind of going back to answer your question, um, they're both, they work best at scale. Um, and I'll explain why. So in the case of subscriptions, um, if I want to subscribe to, to a website, if I'm a super fan, I might subscribe to an individual content creator or to a pretty niche platform. But most people, most of the time, will subscribe to the platforms that have the most content and appeal to the most different interests. Um, and so it's much easier for someone like a Netflix to convince people to pull out their credit card and sign up uh, permanently uh, than you know it is for a much smaller uh, subscription service. Um, and then on the advertising side, once again, you have massive economies of scale. Namely, you know, if I'm Google or Facebook and I have data on billions of people, I can target my ads very specifically, um, and I can charge a lot more from advertisers than you know a much smaller platform could. And so, as a result, the money ends up being in the big platforms, and so the the content follows the money. The internet wasn't built overnight, and is itself a constantly evolving communications network. So. What are the technical factors behind this dynamic? Yeah, that's that's a super interesting question. I, th I think that when you look at the origins of the internet, people always knew that content has value. Um, and even if you look at the specifications underlying the internet, and not to geek out too hard here, but um, one of the most important protocols on the internet is HTTP. And you might have heard of this error 404, like page not found. So it specifies these different error conditions. And one of them is 402, which is payment is required. Um, and if you look at the spec uh, for that standard, to this day, it says um, reserved for future use. So like after 30 years, they've always known that people may want to pay for content online, but they've never found a way to do it in a sort of standard open way that doesn't rely on one company or a set of companies that are providing the payment functionality. And so with the core protocols that power the internet not supporting monetization, people have found workarounds. They've, they've um, turned to ads, they've turned to selling users' data, um, they've turned to subscription models. Um, and it's those workarounds that ultimately are driving a lot of that centralization because I can make much more money with a big subscription platform that appeals to a lot of people, and I can make much more money with ads that that go out to billions of people versus if I was a smaller ad network. And so those workarounds are really what's driving that centralization. So again, just to make sure I'm getting this straight, the internet was not created in effect 
with money in mind. So third parties have had to build their own payment infrastructures. And because of this, browsing patterns uh, are really rewarded through those so-called workarounds, as you call them, that because of their third-party status, work according to economies of scale. So the frictions you're thinking about aren't the frictions of setting up and running sites, uh, but the friction of literally moving money in a way such that browsers can reward content providers? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, uh, you know, it used to be that you had these different um, you know, it, uh, online services systems, so like CompuServe, some people might remember Genie. You know, I'm from Germany, we had BTX. Um, and you could basically kind of log into those and then you could buy your airline tickets or whatever. But because these were all proprietary networks, each company that wanted to offer their services through that network had to have an integration with that particular network. Um, and so you can kind of imagine, like, if you are um, a global company, yeah, you can go and, and integrate to, you know, a hundred different um, online services networks around the world. But what the internet has sort of made possible is for much smaller companies to do the same thing. Now, the problem is that while this has happened to online services networks and communication with the internet, it hasn't happened to payments yet. And so with payments, there's still all these different networks, whether it's your PayPal or your M-Pesa or Alipay, WeChat Pay. Um, in, in different countries, like in, in Europe, there's a whole patchwork of, of services that are nation-specific, like Ideal in the Netherlands or Support in Germany. Um, and so if I want to be a um, you know, a merchant, yeah, I can integrate with the credit card networks and get some pretty decent coverage, but there's still a lot of people that that leaves out. Um, and so a lot of merchants end up integrating with, with, you know, dozens or even hundreds of payment methods. I think Amazon supports more than a hundred different payment methods across the world. And so again, that favors larger, um, larger sites. And so, you know, what, what we kind of asked ourselves um, from a research perspective uh, about five years ago was, well, could you apply some of the principles that have uh, commoditized communication with the internet? Could you apply some of those principles to payments? And so, you know, the same way the internet routes little tiny packets of data, could you route little tiny packets of money and then bridge the gaps and, and um, you know, standardize across these differences in how payment systems work around the world? So these are really multi-layered problems, problems tied to both the opportunity and, and, and frankly, shortcomings of the internet. Uh, so how have you gone about setting uh, an, an intellectual framework for imagining potential solutions, especially where you're, you're facing a challenge where the world is complex? I mean, even if the internet may be ubiquitous, people live in very different parts of the world with different commercial habits and payment ecosystems, and that makes payment frictions really a, a pretty tough nut to crack. Our approach has been not to reinvent the, the wheel, but to look at what has made the internet so successful. Um, my kind of journey into payments actually started with you know, cryptocurrency and, and an interest in Bitcoin. I was uh, very involved in the Bitcoin community back in 2010. And that was coming from a, from a point of, you know, I had been a freelancer and I'd experienced payments friction firsthand. And I, I had sort of this you know, visceral feeling that maybe you could do something to fix that, or maybe you could help somehow. Um, but what I what I quickly learned was that you know a lot of the payment friction exists for very good reason, and and these um, these problems aren't simple to solve. Like the more you learn about an industry, the more you understand how things have evolved the way that they have. Um, but I still felt that there were lessons that 
you know, I had as a web developer who's very familiar with how the internet works and, and sort of the economics of websites and things like that and how that community and that technology works, um, that there's some of those lessons could transfer over to payments. And so I started thinking about, um, together with, with my team, uh, you know, how do you, um, how do you connect these very different kinds of payment networks? Like one of, one of the th- problems that the crypto and the blockchain community have, have had, in my opinion, was that they, they felt just like a lot of other, um, types of, of payment networks felt the same way, um, that they're going to replace everything else and they're going to take over everything else. Um, and that they are the future. And like, I think one thing that the internet did extremely well is, it doesn't replace anything, you know, it doesn't replace Wi-Fi, it doesn't replace satellite connectivity and, and so on. It just unifies it. And the reason it's able to do that is because the internet itself specifies essentially as little as possible. Um, so it really just says like, okay, well, if we're going to send a, a packet of data from one person to another, well, we're going to need some kind of address so we can talk about, you know, who's that, uh, who's that person that we're trying to get that data to. And we're going to need some way to, to find the path. So like, what are the different connections that we have to use, the different physical links that we have to use to get to that destination? Um, but that's almost it. Like there isn't a whole lot else that the internet protocol itself specifies. And so what it enables then is for people to constantly develop new network standards that the internet can ride on. So Wi-Fi 6 is relatively new and people are adopting it. Um, but what's really cool is I can adopt that locally in my environment and I don't have to wait for the entire world to upgrade to Wi-Fi 6. Like I can roll it out in my home just by buying a new Wi-Fi router and a new smartphone, right? Um, and in the same way, in the same vein, like if there's a technology that works better in a different context, like maybe um, in, in Africa, uh, connectivity um, has to bridge longer distances. And so people use uh, LTE technology more so than, you know, Wi-Fi technology, for example. And so um, different technologies work better in different contexts. And so if you apply all of these ideas to payments, well, you can say, well, let's make a payment protocol, which doesn't do much more other than specify things like addressing and routing, but then leave a lot of the, the details up to um, to be implemented for each local environment. And so in some places, mobile money might be the most efficient way to do things. In another place, it might be cryptocurrency. And yet another place, it might be banking. Um, but we're not going to have an opinion about that. Um, and then the other side of the of that coin is um, on top of that layer, the, the internet protocol layer, um, you can build all these different applications. So right now we're talking over um, you know, a, a voice over IP um, uh, application, but I can also use that same internet layer to go visit a website or send a file or an email. Um, and so we can have all these different use cases that all share the same infrastructure. And once again, if I look over on the payment side, right now we actually have, you know, separate infrastructure in a lot of cases. So for example, a lot of payments companies have money pre-funded around the world so that they can um, do real-time transactions without having to wait for, you know, a bank wire to come, you know, across, across borders. And so all of that infrastructure, that capital that's sitting there to service those payments is duplicated in a lot of cases. Like a lot of corporates have it. A lot of payments companies have it. There isn't that same sense of kind of shared infrastructure that we have in the, in the world of communication. I think some of those ideas might translate over. So how exactly did you move from this abstract, technological observation to a practical application? 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so I think that um, we've been working on this sort of general idea, like everything I've described at this point. Uh, we ended up calling that protocol Interledger, so kind of like internet, but for ledgers, i.e. payments. Um, it's not a ledger itself, just like the internet isn't really a network itself. It's a network of networks. It's something that um, uses existing infrastructure and kind of ties it together. And in 2018, we got to a point where we felt like the Interledger was a really good idea and we got great reactions uh, talking to people about it, but it was entirely theoretical. And so the question is, how do you take a, an idea like that and you actually make it a reality? And so we started thinking, like, what could be those niche use cases for this new payments infrastructure? And one of the um, one of the ideas that very quickly stood out is, well, we have the World Wide Web and we have all this interesting content and news and um, you know entertainment that's available on there, but we don't really have a built-in open business model. And, and Interledger could be that. It could be um, the infrastructure that we use when I'm reading your article on your blog, when I'm watching the video that you posted, um, that could be my way of rewarding you without us to both have to go to some big platform to handle that for us. When you take a step back, uh, you, you really have an interesting little company here, uh, one with enormous implications for society. I mean, when you when you really sit back and think about it, the information on the internet is like anything else. It's, it's not costless, and the more friction there is, the harder it is to monetize and, by extension, place anything online. So what you've done is make this radical observation and, and business sort of play that payments make the world go round, the internet world go round. And what you want to do is change the reward structure of that world. I wonder if that could serve as a challenge for platform firms because they've got to see where this idea itself could lead and, and it could have a real impact on what kind of content is ever even made available online. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean everything you're saying is exactly the, you know why we are in this exact business and why we feel like you know I I, I you know my background in in crypto um, is such that you know I am now more interested in you know how to how can we help the world and how can we make the world a better place and and I think this is one of the things that is sort of absolutely at the heart of what's wrong with the world right now is is the fact that. Um, we've had, we have all this communications technology, um, and but the payments technology just hasn't kept up. And so it's sort of like you've got everybody around the world able to look through the through the window, but not touch anything, you know, and um, not participate um, in in all the economic activity that that's going on that they can now see and are exposed to, but not necessarily can participate. Um, and I think that that there's so many facets of that, right? Like that's playing out internationally. Um, and this is why we're very interested in like financial access. Um, but it's also playing out here in the US where you have like, you know, very large income inequality. Um, and you're sort of like asking yourself, like, why, why is that the case? And I think that, um, when you keep pulling that thread and you keep pulling that thread, um, you get to you get to the point that like one of the most fundamental things you can do um, is to lower the barriers that prevent people from engaging in um, economic activity with one another. And it's like the times that you get these companies that are incredibly valuable and able to extract a lot of money from the market. It's when they've been able to get put themselves into a position where 
you have no choice but to go through that company. Um, and it's actually interesting. One thing you said um, earlier was, uh, you know, that those companies would be very mad at us. And it's actually not the reaction that we're necessarily getting. It's like when we talk to big tech companies, you know, very often their employees very much have the same concerns about, you know, the way the web works and, and, and the fact that people should have more um, access to the economic aspects of the web and so on. Um, and they're quite interested in like, you know, if the world is going to change into a better direction, you know, they are innovative enough that they can adapt and, and thrive in that new world as well. So um, I think that there aren't a lot of people, as far as I can tell, who are really against this. Um, it's more a question of, you know, you're trying to affect um, change on a very large scale. And so that means you have to coordinate a lot of people together. Um, and that's just by its nature difficult. Do you have any thoughts as to how you or, or frankly, anyone else could climb that mountain? One of the things about how does new technology kind of spread is um, you have to find ways to integrate with what's already there. Um, I think that, you know, uh, one great example that I love is when the Internet first came out, of course, there were phone lines to a lot of houses, but there were no Internet connections to a lot of houses. Right. And so questions like, how do you go online if there's not a physical internet connection to your house, you know, and it, it seems completely unreasonable for the internet to become popular if everyone has to first spend a million dollars to lay down a internet connection to their house. And so what people did is they took internet signals or internet packets and turned them into noises using a modem, a modulator, demodulator, and then they played those noises into their phone and then converted it back to an internet packet on the other end and, and before you know it, you're online. And that's that's a, such a clunky workaround, but it's also brilliant because now you can use all of the existing phone infrastructure to get online. And a lot of what you know we are doing in order to try to get Interledger out to people is try to find similar workarounds. Like for example, letting people sign up to Coil with a credit card and then we can give them the Interledger access from there. And so you're, we're hooking into a legacy uh, payment method, um, but providing access to the new one. And so I think it's 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 a lot of entrepreneurship that is required to get these kinds of technologies in people's hands. Stefan, thanks so much for having joined the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been super fascinating to talk about. What I find most intriguing about Stefan's thoughts is how much they turn on the head the traditional assumption that fintech is well, the little brother of the internet. But what he's showing is that when you peek close enough, you get a sense that in reality, fintech is the gatekeeper for the vibrancy of the web. It's the gateway through which the cost of commerce and communication are itself determined. And as such, it'll play a central role in determining the very shape and future of our society. And that's worth paying attention to. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, 
a global technology and media company.